Okay, let's let's get started. It's good to be back with you. We're going to be in Revelation the next two Sundays, picking up our study where we left off, and then we'll have a couple of special services at the end of the year and continue thereafter. So it's my hope that we'll finish chapter 11 these next two Sundays, and this outline will bring you to the end of the chapter. Okay? I hope you're keeping these as a reference. I do have the files, and we can maybe put a little booklet together at the end of this study. So this is actually message number 71 in this series that began back in 2013. So it's a privilege and an honor to go through God's Word, even if it's but slowly. The Bible says in Galatians 4 verse 4 that when the fullness of the time was come, God sent forth His Son made of a woman, made under the law, to redeem them that are under the law that we might receive the adoption of sons. That's the message I preached Friday on the campus of the University of North Carolina at Asheville. That when the time was right, God sent forth His Son. You see, we're all the offspring of God. We've all been created by God. But when our first father and our first mother sinned in the Garden of Eden, that image of God was tainted And our relationship with Him as His children was broken. You see, we can't be born into the family of God. That's impossible because of sin. Now, contrary to what the world teaches, all men are not the children of God. You can't be born into that family anymore. You have to be adopted. You have to be adopted into God's family. And that comes through faith in Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ came... 2,000 years ago at a precise point in human history when according to God the time was right. And He came, born of a virgin, that we might be adopted into God's family. And that's available to all men. In the same manner, when the time is right, when it is precise, Christ Jesus will come again. Not at some random time, Not when we think it's right or not when we think it should be right, but when the fullness is come according to God. So just as Christ was born in a manger in Bethlehem at a precise time when the time was right, a very appropriate time in human history, considering that God would build a Gentile church and it would go to the ends of the earth. So His return will be precise. His coming for His church in the air, the rapture, will be precise. There's a moment when God the Father will turn to God the Son who sits at His right hand and say, and say, Go, get your children. And in an instant, we'll be with Him at the precise time. Do we have the faith to trust God with that? Do we have the faith to trust God with everything? Our, our circumstances, even though our circumstances might seem not what we feel is right or not what our family or our church thinks is right or convenient or what's not what's comfortable, are we willing to trust God and see Him at work and to seek His peace? You know, is the time right for me to uh, take a job? Is the time right for me to live, uh, to go on the mission field? Is the time right for me to leave my country and leave in another country? If it's not right, don't do it. When God does things, He does them precisely when the time is right. And these things we're reading about here in Revelation, I think, can be tied to Christmas. Because Christmas took place the first Christmas when the time was right. These things will take place when the time is right. We can know it's close. The Bible tells us things to look for, signs. Israel is in the land. The natural branches are budding again. The time is close but it'll only happen when it's right. Let's look at Revelation chapter 11, verses 15 through 19 this morning. It is written, And the seventh angel sounded, and there were great voices in heaven saying, The kingdoms of this world are become the kingdoms of our Lord and of His Christ, and He shall reign forever and ever. And the four and twenty elders, how similar is that to what the angels announced when Christ was born? And the four and twenty elders which sat before God on their seats 
fell upon their faces and worshipped God, saying, We give Thee thanks, O Lord God Almighty, which art and which was and which is to come or art to come, because Thou hast taken to Thee Thy great power and hast reigned. And the nations were angry, and Thy wrath is come, and the time of the dead that they should be judged, and that Thou shouldest give reward unto Thy servants the prophets, and to the saints, and to them that fear Thy name, small and great, and shouldest destroy them that destroy the earth. And the temple of God was opened in heaven, and there was seen in His temple the ark of His testament, or the ark of His covenant. And there were lightnings and voices and thunderings and an earthquake and great hail. What we have here, my friends, is a worship service in heaven. A worship service in heaven. Now we're going to see a little bit later in the book the exact same worship service. This is the overture. Then comes the finale. So I want to look at this today. It's just a few verses, but there's a lot of blunt, bold, overreaching biblical truth in here in which we can take comfort in these dark days. Verse 15, the seventh angel sounded. The seventh angel sounded. I want to look at the big picture here for a minute, just for review. Where are we at in the book of Revelation? What's happening? Where is the narrative? Where is the chronology? And then we'll look at some specifics. So, the seventh angel sounds. This is the seventh trumpet judgment. If you go back to the tribulation and its beginnings in Revelation, as revealed in Revelation 6, there are seven seals on the title deed of the earth that only the Lamb is worthy to open. And as those seals are opened, judgment falls. The seventh seal is the seven trumpet judgments. And now we're at the seventh trumpet and we're about to find out what that entails. All of this falls under the seventh seal. And once the seventh seal is opened, the scroll, the title deed of the earth is laid bare. And the Lamb can take the authority that was given to Him when He rose from the dead. Now the sixth angel, if we go back to chapter 9, was the sixth trumpet judgment. And we learned that the sixth trumpet judgment was what is called the second woe. Very bad judgments. The second woe. The sixth angel, if you'll remember, was the unleashing, or the sixth trumpet judgment was the unleashing of fallen angels bound in Tartarus to reap destruction across this earth. I believe this is a spiritual army I don't think these are man-made things. This is infernal destruction, birthed from hell, unleashed on this earth. People here think, oh, we've, I've experienced hell on earth. You don't have a clue, friend. Some people in other cultures that worship idols taste of it more than we do. They know the demons are real and the devils are real, but there's going to come a day when there will be no question in any culture that these things are real. The sixth trumpet judgment is infernal destruction whereby one-third of mankind living at that time is killed. Now if you'll remember that back during the fourth seal, a fourth of mankind is killed. So one-third plus one-fourth, you've got half the world's population destroyed by these judgments. That's the last half of chapter 9. Then we get into chapter 10, verse 1, through 11, verse, verse, verse 12. Or I'm sorry, 11 verse 14. And this is what we've just finished. This is the outline we've just finished. This is a parenthesis. It doesn't advance the narrative, but it gives us a glimpse of what God is doing behind the scenes. Even in these terrible days of darkness and judgment, God is at work. And there's testimony going forth. We have testimony of God's truth. The testimony of the mighty angel, which is Jesus Christ on behalf of Israel, the testimony of John, the testimony of two street preachers that God ordains, the testimony of a mighty earthquake in Jerusalem that begins to wake up the remnant of the Jews. 
And then at the end of chapter 11, verses 13 and 14, is the actual end of the sixth trumpet judgment. So everything we've seen is the sixth trumpet judgment, and we know it comes to an end in verse 14 because it says the second woe is past, and the third cometh quickly. Now we get into verse 15. What's the third woe? It's the seventh trumpet. And so the rapture of God's two witnesses after they've been martyred and the earthquake that follows coincides with the end of the sixth trumpet judgment. And immediately we go into the seventh trumpet judgment. I think it's interesting if you read in verse 13, I really didn't talk about this when we were exegeting the passage, but it says that this earthquake comes the same hour that these street preachers, Moses and Elijah, are raptured back to heaven. And the tenth part of Jerusalem falls and 7,000 men are killed in this earthquake. And it says the remnant were affrighted and gave glory to the God of heaven. The remnant here is referring to the Jews in Jerusalem, the primary audience of these street preachers and their ministry. And they began to give glory to God. In my opinion, we see at this point the nation of Israel is waking up. It's waking up. And the end is coming quickly. That's where we are in the book. Now, if you read God's plan and purpose for the Jews, compare and contrast it with His plan and purpose for the church, these are two distinct programs. doesn't mean that men are saved any differently than they always have been by grace through faith. But the Church is not a spiritual replacement of Israel. God has a plan and purpose for them nationally. And there's coming a day when they will cry out to Messiah to come and save them. They will wake up and recognize that Yeshua, Jesus, is the Christ. And they will call upon Him. In fact, Jesus can't come back until they do that. Until the Jews call for Him, He can't come back. There's a precise time when God does these things. God, Christ can come for His church in the air at any moment. But He can't come back to earth until the Jews call for Him. Turn to Hosea chapter 5, 15. This is one of the most important dispensational passages in the Old Testament. Hosea 5, 15. With the sounding of this seventh angel, we're going to see this moment... When Israel calls for their Messiah, it's coming. It's coming quickly. And the seventh angel and the seventh trumpet judgment is going to bring that about. Hosea chapter 5 verse 15, this is God talking. This is Messiah talking. The face of Jehovah is the context. Who is the face of Jehovah? It's Messiah. Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen God the Father. And look what the face of Jehovah says to the Jews in chapter 5, verse 15, I will go and return to my place. So in other words, the face of Jehovah has come out of His place, and now He'll return. Until when? Till they acknowledge their offense and seek my face. In their affliction, they will seek me early. Messiah will return to His place until Israel acknowledges that they rejected Him. And when they acknowledge this, they will call for Him, and He will come. Guys, until Israel calls for Jesus, He won't come, His second coming. Now, I'm not talking about the rapture of the church. That could happen at any moment. But when Israel calls for Him and recognizes they have rejected Him, He is their Messiah. He is not Yeshu, the man we don't speak about, as they call Him today. He is Yeshua, Messiah, Hamashiach. Salvation. So until they call for Him, He won't come. That's a very important passage. Now the Bible tells us in the Old Testament that Israel will be regathered into the land in a state of unbelief. In a state of unbelief. In, in a state of secularism. At some point, Israel will transition from a secular society to a God-fearing society. To a religious society. But that's just a step in the process. 
At some point thereafter, they must transition from a religious society to a messianic people that calls for their Messiah. We are seeing the transition right now from secular to religious or seeking God. That branch is budding. But in the time of Jacob's trouble in the, in the tribulation, they'll see that religious isn't enough. They must cry out and call to their Messiah. At this point, the remnant is affrighted and gives glory to God. At the opening of the seventh trumpet, at the end of the sixth trumpet, the nation's waking up. But let's look at a few passages from the Old Testament. I just want to show you this, and it should highlight how important what happened in May of 1948 is in human history. You know, if, if, if you were living in the Middle Ages, like one of the reformers, Martin Luther, John Calvin, and you had your eschatology messed up, and you were living in a society dominated by the papacy and the Roman Catholic Church, and there was persecution on every side, and the Jews were scattered, and there were, there was no, they were not in Israel. I, I could see maybe you could can be confused with the Scriptures and start thinking, well, the Pope must be Antichrist. Maybe these things are all spiritual. Maybe the church is Israel. And you could have some messed up eschatology. I can understand that in the Dark Ages, but I don't understand that living in 2015. On the other side of Israel being regathered into the land. That's foolishness. That's foolishness. But let's look at a few passages. Daniel, uh, Ezekiel 37, verses 8 and verse 12. Matthew, if you will look up Jeremiah 30, verse 3. Bishnubai. Ezekiel 39, verses 22. Unan chalis ra bais. Ezekiel 39, 22. Eric, Jeremiah 30, verses 5 through 7. Bob, if you'll look up Ezekiel 37, 14. And Ronnie, if you'll look up Jeremiah 30, verse 9. Jason, Romans eleven twenty six. Israel is regathered into the land. God will gather them all out of all nations in a state of unbelief. Ezekiel 37, verses 8 and 12. Just 8 and 12, yes. And when I beheld, lo, the sinews and the flesh came upon them, and the skin covered them above, but there was no breath in them. Therefore prophesy and say unto them, Thus saith the Lord God, Behold, O my people, I will open your graves and cause you to come out of your graves and bring you into the land of Israel. This is Ezekiel's vision of the dry bones. He sees these bones scattered over a dry valley, parched in the sun, no life. Okay? And then he sees these bones start to shake and then they come together and the sinews and the joints and the muscles form and the skin and the bodies and they stand on their feet. And what Ezekiel sees in verse 8 is the bodies. Bones made bodies. But it says there was no breath in them. So bones became bodies fully formed with no breath. And then God says in verse... Um, 12, that He will open their graves and cause them to come out of their graves and bring them into the land of Israel. Okay? So, there's two parts here. There's the part when the bodies are formed and then there's the part where God puts His breath in them. The forming of the bodies that Ezekiel sees is when Israel, we have it defined in verse 12, is when God brings them into the land. He brings them into the land in unbelief. They're bodies without a spirit. But they're not dry bones laying in a desert. A, re, a regathering and unbelief. Proof of this is Jeremiah chapter 30 verse 3. For lo, the days come, saith the Lord, that I will bring again the captivity of my people Israel. And Judah saith the Lord, and I will cause them to return to the land that I gave to their fathers, and they shall possess it. This happened in 1948, and it's continued to happen since then as Jews around the world have made aliyah. Aliyah is pilgrimage from their, the countries of their birth back to Israel. Lots of Jews coming from France these days. Lots of Jews coming from Russia. There's a daily flight from Tel Aviv to Moscow. 
because Jews are making Aliyah, the pilgrimage, to live in Israel. This began when Israel was declared to be a nation in fulfillment of Isaiah 66, a single day in 1948. And what Jeremiah says here is happening. The nation is regathering in unbelief. If you continue to read through chapter 30, we're going to see this in a moment, this regathering that's spoken of in verse 3 is followed by the time of Jacob's trouble, which we know to be the tribulation. So we have a gathering in unbelief. At some point, unbelief becomes religious. Guys, if you go to Israel today, it's a secular society. If you go to Tel Aviv, it's like a San Francisco. Okay? Most Israelis are secular people. They do religious things for religious purposes, but the overwhelming majority of Israelis are sick and tired of the rabbis. The religious... Uh, element, the rabbinic Judaism has less and less sway than it used to have. Yeah, it still has power and it still holds uh, uh, the ability to govern, to, to, to influence decisions in the governments, but the society is overwhelmingly secular, a society of unbelief. Many atheists and agnostics. Ezekiel 39 22. That's you, bye. This is at the end of the Ezekiel 38 and 39 prophecy where Russia backing a confederation of Islamic nations invades Israel and God overthrows them. I believe this happens before the tribulation personally. But the point of this, God intervenes and overthrows this invasion in a mighty way. Two things happen. The heathen around the world wake up and realize that the God of Israel is God. And secondly, the house of Israel will know that the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is most assuredly their Lord. So we have unbelief becoming fear of God, the God of Israel. Unbelief becomes religious. Unbelief becomes believing in the God of Israel. And I think this is a direct result of God's intervention on behalf of Israel. We, th we see these things shaping up now in Syria with the involvement of, of the Russians. No question in my mind. Jeremiah 35 through 7. For thus saith the Lord, we have heard a voice of trembling, of fear and not of peace. Ask ye now, and see whether a man doth travail with child. Wherefore do I see every man with his hands on his loins as a woman in travail, and all faces are turned into paleness. Alas, for that day is great, so that none is like it. It is even the time of Jacob's trouble, but he shall be saved out of it. So this is what Jeremiah writes immediately after saying God will regather them in the land. They're regathered in unbelief. Then there's a time of Jacob's trouble. That's the tribulation we're reading about now. And what, God, what does God say He'll do? He will save Jacob out of it. So unbelief becomes God-fearing and religious. But, it's not yet messianic. Ezekiel 37, 14. And shall put my spirit in you, and you shall live, and I shall bless you your own land. Then shall you know that I, the Lord, have spoken it and performed it, saith the Lord. This is the vision of the dry bones. We're back there again. Look at the stages here. God says, I will open your graves and cause you to come out of your graves and come into the land of Israel in a state of unbelief. And you shall know that I am the Lord when, you, when I have opened your graves and brought you up out of your graves. They will, As a process of coming into the land and through the trials and tribulations associated with it, they'll come to a place, I believe following Ezekiel 38 and 39, that they'll know Jehovah is the Lord. No more atheism. They'll know. And then the final stage, and I will put my spirit in you. And you shall live, and I shall place you in your own land. Then you shall know that I, the Lord, have spoken it and performed it, saith the Lord. This is when Israel as a nation becomes messianic. They have God's Spirit in them. Just like we who are followers of Jesus Christ have God's Spirit in us. Messianic. 39. I mean, I'm sorry. Jeremiah 30, verse 9. They shall serve the Lord their God, and they 
They shall serve the Lord their God and David their king, whom I will raise up to them. That's the final stage, messianic. Coming up out of the grave, secular, coming into the land, knowing that God is the Lord, religious, serving God and David their king. David their king is a reference. I believe David physically will sit on a throne in the messianic kingdom as the governor and ruler of Israel. Christ will sit on the throne of David as the ruler of the whole world. So I think there's a sense in which there is, uh, this is literal and a sense in which this is referring to Messiah. Because David prophesied of Messiah. David was a type of Messiah. They won't just serve the Lord. They will serve Yeshua HaMashiach. But he can't come until they call for him. It says in Ezekiel 39... restates the same thing. This is after the Russian invasion and everything talked about. It says, Therefore, thus saith the Lord, now I will bring again the captivity of Jacob, verse 25, and have mercy upon the whole house of Israel and will be jealous for my holy name. After they have borne their shame and all their trespasses whereby they have trespassed against me when they dwelt safely in their land and none made them afraid. So there was a time when Israel dwelt safely but their land was full of sin. And they must confess and repent of these sins. That's the time we're looking at now. When I have brought them again from the people and gathered them out of their enemies' lands and am sanctified in them in the sight of many nations. God will be sanctified in them when this invasion is overthrown and throughout the tribulation period. Then they shall know that I am the Lord their God which caused them to be led into captivity among the heathen. Most Jews, many atheistic Jews today would say, because we were led captive, because we suffered the Holocaust, because these things happened, there is no God. There's going to be a time when they wake up and realize these half things happen because there is a God. And He is the God of Israel and He does exactly what He says He's going to do. But I have gathered them into their own land and left none of them anymore there. Neither will I hide my face, the face of Jehovah, Yeshua, from them anymore. For I have poured out my spirit upon the house of Israel, saith the Lord God. There's a time when they, God will pour out His spirit and they will look upon Him or me, God says, whom they have pierced. When that spirit is poured out, religious becomes messianic. Romans 11.26 so all Israel shall be saved. And it is written, There shall come out of Sion the and shall turn away as godliness from Jacob. And so all Israel shall be saved. In that moment, when Israel acknowledges their offense and calls for Messiah, all Jews living at that time will be saved. And Christ will come. A deliverer will come out of Zion. Jesus will come. So, throughout this tribulation period, we're seeing Israel, we've already seen them regathered in the land and continue to be gathered in unbelief. That unbelief will turn into fearing God and knowing God is the Lord. And then that will inevitably lead to knowing Jesus is Messiah. And when that recognition comes, Messiah will stand and He will return to deliver them. I'm not talking about the rapture of the church. That could happen in any moment. Christ comes in the air for His church. He comes to the earth to overthrow Antichrist and to save His people, Israel. So these things are all in the context of what we see happening here. This remnant of Israel at the end of the sixth trumpet is affrighted. And who do they give glory to? To Antichrist? To the rabbis? No, to the God of heaven. Because the nation is waking up. And then the seventh angel sounds its trumpet. The seventh angel is the seventh trumpet. Look at chapter 8, verse 2 of Revelation. How do we know this? John says, I saw the seven angels which stood before God, and to them were given seven trumpets. Verse 15 of chapter 11, and the seventh angel sounded. This is the seventh trumpet judgment. This is the third woe, or the third 
extremely terrible judgment. How do we know that? Verse 13 of chapter 8, And behold, I heard an angel flying through the midst of heaven saying, Woe, 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 three times, to the inhabitants of the earth by reason of the other voices of the three angels which are yet to sound. Then follows the fifth trumpet, the sixth trumpet, and the seventh trumpet. So we know the seventh trumpet introduced here is the third woe. The seventh trumpet is the third woe. It is what we will read about in chapter 16, the seven vile judgments of God's wrath. So it's not a singular judgment. The seventh seal is not a singular judgment. It's seven trumpets. The seventh trumpet is not a singular judgment. It's the seven vials of God's wrath. That is found in Revelation chapter 16. So what we see here is the seventh trumpet blown here at the end of chapter 11. So that tells you that chapters 12, 13, 14, and 15 are another parenthesis. Because the narrative does not continue until the vials are poured out in chapter 16. And we're actually going to see this same scene in heaven repeated again in chapter 15. So we know another parenthesis is coming. That's what's happening here in the book. How do we know these are the seven vile judgments? Look at chapter 16, verse 1. We know that the temple of God is opened in heaven when the seventh angel sounds. I just read that. We're going to see that again in chapter 15. Verse 6, chapter 16, verse 1, And I heard a great voice out of the temple saying to the seven angels, the ones that blew the seven trumpets. Go your ways and pour out the vials of the wrath of God upon the earth. So the end of chapter 11 is a worship service. Chapter 15 is the same worship service. And then chapter 16, the vials are poured out. So the seventh trumpet is seven vile judgments. That's where we are in the book. It all fits together very nicely. What we see says the seventh angel sounded. And from that point on to the end of the chapter, what we see is a worship service in heaven. It's in heaven. It's not here on earth. It's in heaven. It's what I believe is an overture that will be followed by a finale, which is chapter 15. A worship service in heaven. We see that phrase in heaven twice at the end of this chapter, verse 15 and 19. This is the third worship service in heaven so far in the book. If you'll remember chapters 4 and 5, the Lamb and the title deed of the earth, the church raptured out is in heaven, represented by those 24 elders. If you read chapter 5, verses 8 through 10 in the King James Bible, there's no doubt that the church is in heaven. Thou hast redeemed us out of every tribe, tongue, and nation. Not them, us. And that's what it is in the Greek. I don't know why the modern versions obscure that. But the church is in heaven worshiping the Lamb who is worthy to open the scroll. Right there with the cherubim and with the elders and the angels. It's a great worship service. And then in chapter 7, after we see that God seals the 144,000 Jewish witnesses who will do the job that the church is supposed to be doing now, we see the fruit of their ministry. It's heathen peoples. It's Gentiles who listen to the preaching and come to Christ. Not people who've heard the Word of God clearly in this dispensation. Those will believe a lie. But heathen peoples that will come a great revival, a great awakening, and they will pay for it with their lives. We see these tribulation saints worshiping in heaven. A second worship service at the end of chapter 7. And then here we have a third worship service. The overture. The overture. I believe what we see here in chapter 11 is the worship and adoration for God and for Christ primarily of the church. Why do I say that? If you look at verse 16, who is it that falls before God and worships? It's the 24 elders. 
If we go back to chapter 5, we know these are representatives of the redeemed of the church. And we talked about that when I preached through chapter 5. So we have this worship and adoration of the church at the end of chapter 11. Then we have a great parenthesis. As I mentioned, chapter 12 verse 1 verses through chapter 14 verse 20. This is another parenthesis that's going to take us a while to work through. The classic description of these chapters is the seven personages or the seven great characters of the tribulation period. I'm not sure this, so sure this is the best way to describe what happens in these chapters. Of these seven personages, two of them are called by John great wonders. And so if there are two great wonders and a bunch of characters listed thereafter, it seems to me that the focal point is two wonders and the major characters that play a part in whatever these two wonders are about. The two wonders are Satan, the dragon, and the woman, which is Israel. It's Satan versus Israel. No longer Satan versus the church, because the church is in heaven, it's been raptured. But Satan versus Israel. A war in heaven and manifested on earth. And so we're going to have this parenthesis that discusses the major characters that play a part in this war between Satan and Israel that takes place in the latter part of the tribulation. And so we have this parenthesis where we're going to learn about the dragon. We're going to learn about the woman clothed with the sun. We're going to learn about Michael the archangel. Okay? We're going to learn about the beast out of the sea, the Antichrist. We're going to learn about the beast out of the earth, the false prophet. Okay? We're going to learn about Messiah. Okay? We're going to learn about characters, major characters that have a part in this great war. The first great wonder that John sees in chapter 12 is um, Israel. And then he sees the dragon ready to devour her. Then he sees the Christ child, the archangel Michael. There's um, the, the Antichrist. There's the false prophet. Uh, uh, there's, there's a lot of... Um, there's a Jewish remnant. There's a lot of characters. So we're going to get into this character sketch. And then when we get to chapter 15... John basically returns to the exact same scene he's describing here at the end of chapter 11. The same worship service. Here we have an overture at the end of chapter 11. In chapter 15 we have the finale. Here we have the worship and adoration of the church. There we will have the worship and adoration of the tribulation saints. The ones that have come to Christ during the tribulation and who have been martyred. So it's the same scene, it's the same service. So I'm trying to give you a big picture here of what's going on. I'm sorry if I've lost you. But this is the big picture. All Scripture has a context, and we have to give the context. How do I know this is the exact same scene? Look at verse 19 of chapter 11. And the temple of God was opened in heaven, and there was seen in the temple the ark of His testament. And there were lightnings and voices and thunderings and an earthquake and great hail. This worship precipitates the opening of a temple in heaven. And in that temple is seen by John the Ark of the Covenant. Or the Ark of God's Testimony. Then look at chapter 15 verse 5. And after that I looked. After this worship of the tribulation saints, I looked and behold the temple of the tabernacle of the testimony in heaven was opened. So again, we see the temple and the ark come into view in both passages. It's opened, followed by worship. Same scene, same service. One is an overture, one's a finale. One is the adoration of the church, which is in heaven. One is the adoration of the tribulation saints, which have been martyred and are in heaven. When I read these things and I see the large context, I'm reminded of a very important passage from 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 40, with the regard to the church. God gave very, Paul gave very specific instructions to the churches. And he said, 
let all things in the church be done decently and in order. What we do as a church should be decent and it should be in order. When I see God revealing Himself, particularly in prophecy, I see it's very decent and it's in order. It all comes together. It's not just random visions. You know, the, the so-called prophet Muhammad, he was no prophet. I think he smoked too much hashish when he had his visions. I mean, it wasn't decent and in order. If you read the Quran, there's nothing decent. There's nothing in order about it whatsoever. It's random. Random visions. Demon-possessed, I mean, demon-induced visions. Drug-induced visions. There's nothing decent and in order whatsoever. But what is revealed here about the end times is decent and in order. We can follow the narrative. We can see God's revealing what goes on behind the scenes. In the church, my friends, we should do all things decently and in order because God reveals Himself decently and in order. If we want to be like God, we'll be decent and in order. That's how He is. When you look at God's revelation of Himself in Scriptures, it's progressive, it's consistent revelation. Not through a single prophet. Never been through a single man, a single prophet. A cult follows a single prophet. God has revealed Himself through a plethora of prophets who spoke by the Holy Ghost and their witnesses never contradicted one another and culminating with the revelation of His Son. God began His revelation through the prophets and in these last days He speaks to us through His Son. This is decent and in order. As regards the church, let all things be done decent and in order. Orderly. When I look at God's revelation of Himself, I think of these four words, organized, consistent, simple, and unadulterated. When I think of how we should be as a church, what, what should characterize our ministry? What we do, how we gather, what we preach, how we advise one another, how we seek God's will. I think we should, be, we should think of these four words, organized. We should be organized. Not just random. Consistent. What we preach and teach today should be what we preach and teach tomorrow. Yes, we grow in the knowledge of the Lord, but we shouldn't be swinging back and forth on a theological pendulum. If we act according to the Word of God today in one situation, we should act according to the Word of God in another situation. Consistency. Simple. The ministry of the church is simple. God's revelation and what He's going to do in the end times is not complex. It's pretty, pretty simple. God said it. He's going to do it. Period. God made promises to Israel. He's going to fulfill it. God said what would happen to Antichrist. It'll happen. Paul warned the church in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 3. Guys, if none of this stuff is practical, then we shouldn't, shouldn't bother with it. This isn't, we, can, we can learn lots of practical truth stemming from Revelation. 2 Corinthians 11, verse 3. Paul warns the church, but I fear lest by any means, just as the serpent beguiled or deceived Eve through his subtlety or his craftiness, so your mind should be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. Friends, the minds of the church in America has been corrupted from the simplicity that should be in Christ. The minds of so many believers in so many churches around the world have been corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. When believers in foreign lands think that the American dream is automatically the will of God, their minds have been corrupted. When believers in foreign lands think that sending my child to go to a university in America is more important than anything else, their mind has been corrupted. Anybody that thinks America is the promised land has been corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. I'm just speaking it because it's true. And we ought to remember that when we seek God's wisdom in situations. When we think that the church has to be a huge auditorium with a bunch of ministries and all this money and all these programs with all these buildings, 
Our minds have been corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. And we have stepped aside from what is decent and in order. God reveals Himself, even in prophecy, decently and in order. Let us do things in decent, with decency and in order. What we do, what we seek in terms of God's will, let it be simple. The simple is how God reveals Himself, not the complex. If we have two options before us, and we don't know which way is God's, which way is simple? Simple doesn't mean easy necessarily. Not the same thing. But which is simple versus which is complex? Those are the questions we should be asking. Unadulterated. Unadulterated, there's not an adjective form. I'm using adjectives here, but there's the word integrity. Integrity has no adjective form in the English language. So, with integrity, that's what an unadulterated means means. We need to be people that are organized, consistent in our worship and in our, in our ministry in terms of the church, simple uh, and unadulterated. That means with integrity. We must practice what we preach. We must not give advice to someone that we ourselves wouldn't live by. We must not tell someone that's seeking counsel this is right if it wouldn't be right for our life. And I know there's different things in different situations and liberties in the body of Christ. But if somebody asked me advice concerning their children, and I were to give them advice that conflicts with what I believe is right for my own children, then that's, that's not advice with integrity. We must practice what we preach. These things are decent and in order. We should be decent and in order because God reveals Himself decent and in order. And we see that with this context here. We see this worship service in heaven. We see this parenthesis. We see the same scene in heaven. And then we see the book progressing. Revelation is not full of dark secrets that we can't discern. It's decent and in order. It's the revelation of Jesus Christ. Go back to the first verse of the whole book. The revelation of Jesus Christ which God gave to Him, Jesus Christ, to show unto His servants things which must shortly come to pass. And He sent and signified it by His angel unto John. This isn't the revelation of John. This is the revelation of Jesus Christ. Christ is revealed here decently and in order. Let us do all things decent and in order. God doesn't reveal Himself exclusively through religious experience, through a single prophet, through a single angel. God did not reveal Himself through the Quran. There's nothing holy about the Quran whatsoever. God did not reveal Himself. God reveals Himself decent and in order. We see that here in, in Revelation. And it's very clearly spelled out. I think there's a passage in Hebrews that we must give attention to as we look at this worship service in heaven. I'm not going to read it all. But the very first verse of Hebrews, chapter 1 through Hebrews chapter 2, verse 5. I would encourage you maybe to study that in your own time. I would encourage you to read that, ponder upon it. But we see that God reveals Himself and how He reveals Himself. And we see it's decent and in order. And it flies in the face of much that is perpetuated today, claiming to be from God. God who at sundry times and in divers manners, in other words, at different times and in different ways, spake in time past to the fathers by a prophet? No way. By the prophets. Moses and Elijah and Samuel and Isaiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, the apostles. God spoke in times past by the prophets. Not a single prophet, but a, more than 40 authors of the Scriptures. Various walks of life on three continents. Various uh, uh, occupations. Some were kings, some were poor shepherds but it's a progressive revelation. These men were the pen in God's hands and what they wrote progressively unfolds a consistent message that never contradicts itself. 
Jesus Christ is just as much in the Old Testament as He is in the New. You just have to have eyes to see. God spoke in times past by the prophets. Hath in these last days spoken unto us by who? By His Son, whom He hath appointed heir of all things, by whom He made the worlds. And then it goes on to describe Jesus Christ as the image of God. So God spoke in times past by the prophets. He speaks now by His Son. So if you claim to be from God and you deny that, Jesus, that God has a Son, you have committed the most blasphemous, heinous, wicked, disgusting sin there is on the planet. You've denied the God who made you. Jesus Christ summed up the, the, the law of God in two commandments. Love the Lord God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And love your neighbor as yourself. You can't even know what it means to love your neighbor unless you love God first. And if you deny God, excuse me, then you've committed the worst crime of all. You're not a good person. I don't care how friendly you are to other people. You are a wicked, abominable sinner if you've denied your God, whether you deny His existence or whether you deny He has a Son. Because He reveals Himself through His Son. You know, the Muslim says there is no God, but Allah and Muhammad is His prophet, and God has no Son. That's abomination. I don't care if they say there's one God. That's abomination. Wicked. It's of the devil. And I don't care what the Attorney General of the United States has to say. Come prosecute me for saying it. I don't care. It's abomination. Islam is violence. All Muslims that love the God of the Quran love violence. Period. I make no apology for that. But God spoke by the prophets. He speaks now by His Son. So if you deny the Son, you can't hear from God. You can't know God. Jesus said the only way to God was through Him. John 14, 6. But we learn in this passage of Hebrews through uh, chapter 2, verse 5, that Jesus Christ, through whom God speaks, the face of Jehovah, He's superior to the prophets. And we learn that He's superior to the angels. The prophets were just exponents of divine revelation. They were messengers. Jesus was the very expression of divine revelation. He is the message. He is the Word. John 1.18 No man hath seen God at any time. says. I don't want to misquote here. I don't want to paraphrase. This is worth reading word for word. John 1.18 No man hath seen God at any time. The only begotten Son which is in the bosom of the Father He hath declared Him. It's the Son that reveals God. John 14, 9. Philip, have you been with me this long and you still don't know? If you've seen me, you've seen God the Father. And the Muslim tries to tell you that Jesus never identifies Himself as God in the New Testament. They've never read the Injil Sharif, if they can say that. Jesus said, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. Jesus Christ is superior to the angels. You, you, re, you learn this through the end of chapter 1 and first part of chapter 2. The angels are subjects of God. They were created sons of God. They're ministers. But Jesus is the sovereign God. Colossians 2 verse 8, it says, In Him the fullness of God dwells bodily. He's not a created son of God. He's the eternal son of God. The magistrate, not the minister. You know, we, we know the Great Commission. Jesus told His disciples to go into all the world and preach the Gospel. But we never pause to think what our motive should be in doing this. Should our motive be to see lost people saved? Absolutely. Should our motive be to see the church grow? Yes. But Jesus gives us the motive in verse 18 of the Great Commission. We always look at verses 19 and 20. Verse 18, all power. All authority has been given to me in heaven and in earth. Go ye therefore. When we see therefore, we need to ask, what's it there for? Go ye therefore. Why should we go? Why? Verse 18, because all authority has been given to me in heaven and in earth. Jesus Christ is the magistrate who possesses all authority. And it's through Him in these last days that God reveals Himself. So without the Son, you have nothing. He that has the Son has life. He that has not the Son has not life. 
1 John 5. God speaks in these last days by His Son. And to deny the Son of God is to deny God. It's to blaspheme God. 1 John chapter 2, and I'm going to finish up here. This is kind of a, a, a way of introduction. I still got 35 minutes according to the precedent Matthew set weeks ago. 1 John chapter 2, 22 through 23. Listen to this. Who is a liar? But he that denieth that Jesus is the Christ. He is Antichrist that denieth the Father and the Son. You deny the Son, you're a spirit of Antichrist. Whosoever denieth the Son, the same hath not the Father. But he that acknowledgeth the Son hath the Father also. Islam is Antichrist. Rabbinic Judaism that denies God has a Son, Antichrist. Hinduism, Buddhism, Antichrist. It's very clear here. You know, the Jews recite the Shema from Deuteronomy. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. It's the Hebrew word echad. And the rabbis in their commentaries use another word for one, which means singular. And they say, see, God is one, there can't be a trinity. But in the Hebrew text, it's the word echad. You know where that word's also used? For then shall a... Uh, a man leave his father and mother and cleave unto his wife and the two shall be echad. One flesh. One. Husband and wife. One. One flesh, two persons. The Lord our God is one. Echad. One God. Three persons. See, the answer is not in the rabbinic commentaries. It's in the Bible. And the reason it's not seen is because of the veil. Because of the veil. You know, when you look at the way God has blessed the Jewish people and the nation of Israel, they're good at a whole lot of things on this earth. They are very good and talented at a whole lot of things. But there's one thing they absolutely stink at. Even the plow boy that can barely read with simple faith in Christ excels at this more than they more than their wisest of rabbis. And that's the proper understanding and interpretation of the Scriptures. They can't do it. Because of the judgment of Isaiah 6, they're blind. God's always got a remnant. He's always saving people. Praise God! One of those victims in that San Bernardino slaughter was a, was a Jewish follower of Yeshua HaMashiach who, uh, who was not ashamed of his faith. In fact, his declaration of his faith may have been the motive why these Muslim, this Muslim filth came in there and shot those people. That, mu that wicked Muslim told that Jewish man, you'll never see the nation of Israel a couple weeks ago. But oh, how wrong he is. He will see the nation of Israel. He'll see it when it's purged of the wicked demons that have corrupted that place. And he'll rule and reign with Christ in his own portion Praise God for that. God's got a remnant. Praise God for that man and his testimony. There was another believer that was killed in that massacre that had a wonderful testimony. Praise God for that. Praise God for that. God's always got a remnant. But the veil is over the nation. That's why they can't see something as simple as Echad hear about God is the same as what is talked about about husband and wife. They can't see it. But there's coming a day when the veil is removed. It's removed now in Christ for those that believe. But there's coming a day when they will call for their Messiah because the veil is gone. Antichrist, Islam, rabbinic Judaism that denies Messiah. Is, uh, uh, Antichrist, Hinduism, Buddhism, Antichrist. Hinduism says Christ was just a man. He didn't truly die on the cross. He survived the cross somehow. And then he moved to India and studied Hinduism. And he's buried in Srinagar. Absolute... That's not ridiculous, that's redonkulous. <laughs> Buddhism, Jesus was just a teacher, a divine, I mean not divine, but a, an enlightened teacher. No different than Buddha. Antichrist, 
What's 2 John 7 say? 2 John 7 sheds light on a few more of the so-called cults and religions. For many deceivers are entered into the world who confess not that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh. When you read the Old Testament, it's very clear that Messiah, the Hebrew Mashiach, Messiah, is the Greek word Christos, Christ. Christ means Messiah. So when I witness to Israelis, I don't use the word Christ, I just say Messiah. It's the same thing. One's a Hebrew word, one's a Greek word that's become an English word. But it's very clear that Christ is God in the Old Testament. Messiah is God. God says, you will look upon me whom you have pierced. So, to deny that Jesus Christ, that means Christ as revealed in the Old Testament, God is come in the flesh. That means God became a man. To deny that, this is a deceiver and an antichrist. Mormonism, antichrist. Jehovah's Witnesses, antichrist. To deny that Christ, God, came in the flesh and that Jesus is just a created being? The Mormons say He's the brother of Lucifer and that He and Lucifer were the children of Elohim and His spirit wife. They gave birth to them on the planet Kolob. It's really messed up. JWs think that Jesus was a created being. He's not the same as God. They changed the Bible to say in the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God and the Word was a little g God. Beware the watchtower translation. Wicked. Antichrist. I'm sad to say I'm almost afraid that American churchianity is dangerously close to being the spirit of Antichrist. Because the deity of Christ is downplayed Oh, it's written and it's claimed to be believed in the statement of faith of a lot of these churches. You can read it online. But in terms of how what's preached and what's lived, it's as if Christ is just an example to follow. Not that He's God with all power and authority. Not that He's the only way. When we shy away from Christ being the only way, we're shying away from His divinity and we're running full speed toward that spirit of Antichrist. So it's sad that American churchianity is dangerously close to this spirit. Yet Revelation 1.1, the revelation of Jesus Christ. By Jesus Christ. Who is He? God manifest in the flesh. The only one worthy to open the scroll. And the one who will do and control all of these things written therein. And because of all these things, and because the church understands and knows, the true church understands and knows exactly who Jesus is, they fall down on their faces here and they worship Him. And we learn some very powerful things that happen at this moment. Things that we hope for. Things that we look for. The blessed hope of the believer. Hold fast, my friends. It will happen. It's as good as done. God's above all time. He doesn't see things in a moment. We can't understand that with our finite mind, but these things are as good as done. What does John hear? He hears great voices. We'll see a very orderly worship service. This isn't a charismatic worship service with people shouting and screaming and falling on their face and barking like dogs and running around and changing things up. This is orderly. In fact, I would say that this worship service here at the last half of verse 15 through 19 has three stanzas. How do we know it has three stanzas? Because there's references to three different voices. We have great voices in heaven that have something powerful to say. We have great voices uh, uh, represented by the church or the 24 elders who have some amazing things to say. And then we have voices accompanied by lightnings and thunders, earthquake and great hail when the temple is open. So we have three sets of voices. And these voices are voices of worship and adoration. For God. And at the center of that, I believe, is the church. And uh, we learn some very important things about God and how to worship Him. In fact, this week, I want you to ponder upon what the voices of the elders actually do in verses 17 through 18. When they worship God, and I'll talk more about this, 
they praise God for who He is. Then they praise God for what He has done. And then they praise God for what He will do. Friends, when we pray and go to God, when we seek His face and seek His will, when we worship Him in church, let's be those that worship Him for who He is first, what He has done, and what He will do. Let's don't forget what He will do. Let's praise Him for it as if it's already done. It's a good model there. So I'm going to get into the specific exegesis of these verses next week. It's not going to take very long actually, um, but uh, we will finish chapter 11. So I've given you the big picture today of what's taking place here. I'm going to get into specifics, uh, some truths we learn about Christ, who He is, what is happening at this moment of time. Uh, um, the outward visible manifestation of the kingdom. And um, we'll proceed from there. Anybody have any questions? You've got your outline here. This will kind of give you a, a, a way to study the rest of this chapter. And then chapter 12, after Christmas, we'll resume. We get into that great war between Israel and, and, and Satan. And we look at some major characters we're going to learn about Antichrist, the false prophet, the role of the Michael Archangel, what Israel will be dealing with during this time. And then it'll quickly proceed to the coming of Christ in chapter 19 and the new heavens and the new earth. So we'll get there when we get there. Maybe Christ will rapture us and we can finish it up there. That'd be fine with me.